Amen. Thank you, Carlito and the, and the band, uh, all the musicians and singers. You do a great job. How many of you are ready to get into the Word tonight and learn your Bible? All right. Well, let's pray together. And while we're praying, let there be light. I want to be able to see you guys, especially over here. Just so you'll know, well, they're gone now. I never know what's going to happen with the lights in here. But we're going to get those lights that have been going down the middle on the sides as well. Uh, so you folks can see a little bit. But anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for your blessing. And Lord, we come tonight hungry for the word of God. We really want to understand your Bible, Lord. So we pray that you will connect the dots for us tonight. Help us, Lord, to connect those dots from Genesis to Malachi. And understand the Old Testament so we can understand the New Testament better. We thank you for it, Father, in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him we're going to connect the dots. All right. Now, I want to make a quick announcement. This Friday from 5 to 6, I've been asked to be on what's called uh, the pastor's perspective. It, how many of y'all listen to that? Do you? Really? How many of you listen to it? Really? Wow. I had no idea. It's national. And they've gotten us, um, they sent us the software. We've downloaded it. It's in my little office back here. And so I'm going to be one of the two answering strange and bizarre questions. Uh, and I want to know, is there, a, is there a lag time? So if I get a real whopper, I have time to think. And they said, no, it is live. So how many of y'all will pray for me? All right. So, uh, and, you know, it may be a door that opens up. They, they called me and asked me to do it, and so uh, we're going to do it. So one of the two will be yours truly. And uh, I, I'm looking forward to it. It goes all through, all over the nation. Um, we'll be California, all the Midwest, everywhere. So pretty cool. Many, many, many radio stations carry it. So won't that be neat? Jane, you want to come on and help me with it? Raise your hand, Jane, if you'll help me. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Me and Jane go way back. You have to forgive me. Now, connecting, that's this Friday at 5. Oh, 91.3, the station we're on. Good question, Robert. 91.3. Amen. All right. Now, connecting the dots, we're looking at hope out of the ashes tonight. Okay, Tyler, how many of y'all can say with me what's going on? There it goes, but it's really lagging, Tyler. And, you know, everybody say praise God. It's not working, Tyler. You want me to keep talking? Okay, last time, can you, somebody run this back to Tyler, somebody. Thank you so much. We're ready. All right, last time we looked at the monarchy in 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. You remember that? The monarchy. When they went from theocracy to monarchy, from God rule to man rule. And then we closed with 2nd Chronicles 36, 17, and 21, very sobering passage describing Judah's destruction at the hands of the Babylonians and their subsequent 
captivity. They lost everything. It was just so sad. Now, this time, we're going to look at Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther. And the theme is hope out of the ashes. How many of you know God is a God of a second chance? How many of you can say, and also a third and a fourth and a fifth? All right. He's a merciful God. Now, first, we're going to look at Ezra and Nehemiah. Because these, these two books really are a story of restoration. And here comes my restored clicker, I, I hope. Let me, let me try. Yay, everybody say praise God. I don't know what to do without it. Now, Ezra and Nehemiah are grouped together because they were one book in the Hebrew Bible. Okay? So if you were looking at a Hebrew Bible, not the Bible you have in your hand, but the one the Jewish people would use, Ezra and Nehemiah were just one book. Because it's, it's the same story of restoration. They tell one main story in three stages. Now, the first stage concerns the return of a remnant of Jews to Jerusalem. And the remnant consists of those who were exiled. So the first stage, the Jews that were taken into the Babylonian captivity for 70 years because of their chronic rebellious sin, we're going to see them released to return home to Jerusalem and rebuild. Okay? So the first stage is their return. Imagine if you can, Fort Worth being destroyed. What a horrible thought. Okay? Following the destruction, you're separated from your families and taken captive. You, you lose spouse, children, you're separated, estranged, and you're taken off captive. Your friends are scattered as well, and you and them and everybody else are taken to a foreign land. Let's say California. That just occurred to me. I'm sorry. If you're from California, I don't mean anything by it. You look around and everything is different. The people are talking differently from you. The people have different customs, different language, and different beliefs. They're not like you at all. And suddenly there you are, and you're forced to live among them. And to make things worse, you're then enslaved. You have now moved from familiar to strange surroundings. The freedom that you were accustomed to is totally gone. You're no longer a free agent. No longer free to come and go like you want, do what you want, chase your dreams, pursue your ambitions. All that's gone. You're in a foreign power's hand now. The things you knew so well are only a fading memory because now months are turning into years and into decades. And on top it, uh, top it all off, you, you know you're there because you did it. Think about that. It's your mistakes. Because of the sin you embraced, because of your refusal to repent. This is the reality. Uh, you know, the Bible is, is so alive to me. And I, and I got to tell you, this is just a metaphor of the way life really is. Not even a metaphor. It's a fact. It's an Old Testament picture of what happens to you and me when we depart from God and refuse to repent and stiffen our neck and become stubborn and refuse to turn back to him, there comes a point where there, is, there are strong consequences and there is a breaking. And this is what happened to them. 
And I got to tell you, I know I'm a broken record here, but this is where America's headed if America does not repent. America is really playing with fire. And don't miss this weekend because I'm going to talk about it. As it was in the days of Lot, so shall it be in the days of the coming of the Son of Man. Now, so this is where they were. They, they knew. They, they woke up every morning with regret. Wow, here I've lost my freedom, lost everything, because I, we, all of us as a nation refused to obey God and repent. And he gave us opportunity after opportunity ad nauseum. Okay? Then, after 70 long years, imagine, you've been gone from Fort Worth for 70 years. You're suddenly released to return home or to return to what's left of home. It would be a monumental undertaking, would it not? After 70 years, filled with uncertainty, various stresses, and, and would require a good measure of faith to return and rebuild after all that time. Not to mention, you had to forgive yourself and believe that God could give you a new start. Sometimes the biggest obstacle to you getting a new beginning is you believing in the mercy of God. Well, they did. They believed in the mercy of God. And that's how it was for God's people. Now, David describes their initial moment of liberation like this. He says in Psalms 126, verse 1 and 2, When the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. Pinch me. Is this real? Okay. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with joyful shouting. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. How many of you, listen, here's what you want people saying about you. Man, the Lord has done great things for them. So here's David. He, he's saying, our release from captivity was like a dream come true. The word went out quickly among the captive Jews in, in, in Babylon, and it was, we can return. We can really go home. Our days of captivity are over. It, it took a while to, to really get used to the reality of what was happening. They were being released after seven decades. Yet all the captives living in Babylon, of all of those, only a remnant returned. This has always blown me away. It took 70 years for them to decide that they would settle for less than God's best. They became so acclimated to captivity that they no longer wanted freedom. Okay? So they said, the majority said, I'm just going to stay here in Babylon. God bless you guys. Happy rebuilding. And they laid down and walked away from God's destiny for them as a people. Never. I would rather die than do that. What good is living if you're not walking in God's will and fulfilling the purpose for which he designed you? What good is living if you're not doing that? Okay? So a minority returned. The rest of them stayed. We call them the, the diaspora, the, dis, the dispersed ones. Now, the ones who did decide to return now had to regroup. They must organize. They must come up with a plan and tackle the huge challenge that was before them. Now, that's what's going on in Ezra and Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah are the rebuilding books. 
They are the books where the people of God, after having a terrible catastrophe nationally, a terrible catastrophe as a people, collectively and individually, they are returning with the guts and the faith to rebuild and seize their dream again and believe that God can do it again. It took no small amount of courage, church. So the first stage is the remnant returning to Jerusalem. The second stage you see in Ezra and Nehemiah is the rebuilding of the temple. Solomon's temple has signified the very essence of who they were as a people. That temple was the center of worship. That, that temple uh, symbolized and encapsulated who they were as a people. That temple was Israel's identity. And it had been completely destroyed. Solomon's temple. Imagine it. The magnificent temple was the crowning glory of Solomon's accomplishment. Remember, God wouldn't let David do it. David raised all kinds of money for it and, and stuff for it. But he said, I can't do it because I've been a man of war and there's blood on my hands. Solomon, God wants you to do it. And so Solomon's crowning achievement was this temple. The people of Israel's crowning glory was this temple. Because it said, we know God, and he knows us, and we fellowship with him, and he is blessing us, and we're all about him, and he's all about us. We know Jehovah God. The beautiful temple with all of its gold, its stunning architecture, its jaw-dropping handiwork had been absolutely leveled, and they were coming back to rebuild it. It now lay, when they returned, what did they see? Did they, they, they see lush green pastures and still waters and beautiful scenery and a, a site that was inviting? No, they saw, they saw ashes and destruction and pillage and a giant project that they had to accomplish. It was a stark reminder of what their national sin had, had done to them. And now we're going to rebuild that temple. Now, just so you'll know, when the older men saw the foundation laid, when they first laid that foundation of the new temple, it says the older men wept while the younger men rejoiced. Why were the older men weeping? Because they looked at that second temple and they knew it was only a shadow of what the first one had been. And they wept. Okay? For those of us who have been in America beyond our 20s and 30s, we look at America and we weep. And you younger folks in here can't understand that because all you've ever known is what is. But believe me, this nation has undergone a paradigm shift that is absolutely breathtaking. Anyway, there I go again. So they had to rebuild the temple. That was stage two. So stage one was the Jews' return to Jerusalem. Stage two was the rebuilding of the temple. And then the third stage was the rebuilding of the city walls. Now, we're going to see that they successfully rebuilt the temple and the walls around the city, keeping in mind that the wall was their protection. Any city that was a city had a wall, huge walls. Some walls, you could, you could put three or four chariots with horses side by side on top of them, and they could go around the wall. These were huge walls, uh, massive uh, construction projects, okay? So... They successfully, we're going to see in Ezra and Nehemiah, they rebuilt the temple and the walls around the city. Now, the book of Ezra records the rebuilding of the temple 
and the book of Nehemiah, the rebuilding of the city walls. So when you read Ezra, you're going to read all about the rebuilding of the temple under Ezra and Zerubbabel. Now, I don't have this in the, in the notes here, but uh, in, there were three departures from Babylon to come back into Jerusalem. One was under a man named Zerubbabel, one was under Ezra, and the third was under Nehemiah. Ezra came back and rebuilt the temple. And Nehemiah under, oversaw the construction project that was the wall. So Ezra, the temple. Nehemiah, the wall. Now, the authors of the two books are respectively Ezra and Nehemiah, though I'm pretty convinced Ezra likely wrote most of the two. Ezra means helper, and Nehemiah means God is comfort. And boy, they needed help, and they needed comfort. And then just like God, when we're in a situation where our life is in ruins because of our own mistakes, what does God send? He does not send condemnation. He sends a helper, amen, and he sends a comforter. And you know what they say? We can rebuild. Come on, let's rebuild. If you've got the faith, I'm going to do it. We can rebuild. Isn't that good news? Because here they, everything was ashes, and God said, out of the ashes is going to come beauty. I give beauty for ashes. I give the oil of joy for mourning. I give the garment of praise in the place of the spirit of depression. That's what God says. Can we thank him that he's a restorer tonight? Amen. Some of you need to hear that tonight because maybe some decisions you've made have brought ashes and ruin to your life. Let me just show you what God, even in the Old Testament before Jesus came and we were under the law of grace, look what God did. Sent a helper, sent a comforter, sent a rebuilder, said we can do it. It's not over. Praise God. Now, these were men, Ezra and Nehemiah, who really did come on the scene for people who were hurting to bring them help and comfort. Now, one of the great themes of these two books is God's sovereignty. In this series on the Old Testament, you're going to hear from me over and over again, sovereignty and providence. And you're going to hear it from me because I hear it from the Bible over and over again. We 21st century Christians need to understand providence and sovereignty. Uh, some of the teaching that goes around in churches, especially in the West, doesn't teach us providence and sovereignty, the providence of God and the sovereignty of God. It, it teaches us that everything happens here. If we say it, we get it. If we don't say it, we don't get it. That's not, listen, God is in charge of his world, whether or not your tongue agrees with him. That's a shock to some of you. Maybe to a few of you, that's blasphemy. But let me tell you, God is bigger than your tongue. If it was all up to our tongue and what we said, God help us. I'm going home and I'm watching I Love Lucy reruns because it's over. Okay? So can you say with me, God is sovereign and he is providential. Now I'm going to show you what that means as we go on tonight. God really is in charge of world affairs. Though wicked men may scheme, and they do, and they are, and his own people may fail, they do, and they are, God's will and purposes are carried out. 
Okay? He worked to preserve his people for his own glory. He kept Israel from being completely annihilated and wiped out. Brought them back into their homeland. Now, don't miss that. He was not going to let his people live without hope. And he never wants you living without hope. Uh, any, any believer that's close to the Lord should have hope. Any Christian should have hope. Because our God is the God of hope. Now, in fact, one of my all-time favorite verses, and I want you to catch this, was spoken to Judah as they were being carried away into Babylonian captivity. At the very beginning of the 70 years, Jeremiah spoke this verse, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. Thoughts of good and not of evil. Now read the last part with me, everybody. To give you a future and a hope. Now they're being carried off in chains. They've lost their homeland, but here's what God says to them. Look what he says. You, you think I'm thinking evil of you, but let me tell you what I'm really thinking about you, Israel, Judah. I'm thinking good and not evil, and I intend to give you a future and a hope. This storm will pass. This captivity will end. This cloud will pass over, but my grace will be a constant, and I'm going to see you through the other side of this valley. It's not over. It's not final, and it's not fatal. Good stuff. Even as his disobedient people are carried away into captivity, God encourages them with the promise that their failure wasn't fatal or final unless they quit. And the majority of them quit and stayed in Babylon. But the minority came back and laid hold of the promises of God. Now, he did not leave his people without hope, and he brought them back just like he promised he would through many prophecies in the Old Testament. Repeatedly, God said, you're going into captivity, but I'm going to bring you back to your homeland. Now, we see that the overall structure of the book of Ezra strikes a balance between national and spiritual. We have their national restoration in chapters 1 through 6, and their spiritual reformation in Ezra 7 through 10. So you're going to notice this when you go through Ezra, and please read it during the week as we go over this on Wednesday nights. Tonight's just kind of a primer. It, it ought to whet your appetite to read it, okay? So in the first six chapters, they return to Jerusalem and successfully rebuild the temple in the presence of much opposition. Ezra records, look at the opposition that came against them. The people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them. There were hired verbal assassins to go out and discourage and frustrate the builders. Now, now, let me bring this home to you and to me. As soon as you get saved, let me tell you what God does with you. He begins a renovation project on the inside of you. You're under renovation. The Bible says we are his workmanship, and faithful is he who calls you who also will do it. And he that has begun a good work in you will finish it to the day of Jesus Christ. All right? So we are, we are construction projects of the Holy Ghost. He's going to take us from where he found us and, and fashion us and shape us and form us into the image of Christ. We are under construction every single day. And as soon as you and I decide to cooperate with God 
and we begin to read the Word and seek God and pray, and God begins to rebuild our lives, man, do we come under attack. You ought not be surprised when you come under attack if you're really seeking God. Because he's, when God really starts putting you together and rebuilding you and, and, and doing something wonderful in you, you think the devil just sits back and says, well, I, just, well, I lost that one. No, 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 no. He pulls out his sharpest arrows with the most vicious tips. And he draws the bow and he shoots the fiery arrows of hell into your mind and into your life. That's why the Bible says, don't be amazed at the fiery trial that you're in. As though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you're a partaker of the sufferings of Christ. So folks, when God starts to build, that's when you come under attack. Your marriage will come under attack. You'll come under attack. Your kids will come under attack. Your money, the enemy's going to get at you any way he can. And if God, if the enemy can't defeat you, he'll defeat somebody whose defeat defeats you. I'm about to preach and quit teaching. I want you to hear this now. We... So many Christians are shocked and amazed when they come under attack. What is this happening to me? All I did was get saved. But we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, and rulers of the darkness of this world, a spiritual hierarchy that is dedicated and committed to attack the work of God any place they find it. Now, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And you will come through and God will give you the victory. But don't be amazed if you find yourself in a war or somebody near you whose defeat defeats you. Sometimes you have to say, I'm praying for you, but I can't let your stuff defeat me. They trouble them in building, hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. But by the end of chapter 6, their national identity was restored. They had rebuilt the temple. It was there, and that was their identity. Then in chapter 7 through 10, Ezra leads them in a spiritual reformation by turning them away from intermarrying with pagan wives and by the public reading of the Word of God. You know what I've seen reading the Old Testament? The greatest the greatest, one of the greatest traps, the number one greatest one was idolatry, worshiping a false god. But right next to that one, it was marrying someone who carried you into idolatry. I mean, last weekend I talked about, as it was in the days of Noah, the sons of God, the lineage of Seth, intermarried with the daughters of men, the lineage of Cain, and they intermixed, and that preceded God judging the world by the flood because the righteous lineage was totally diluted and polluted by mixing with the ungodly. And you go through all the Old Testament. In, in Ezra and Nehemiah, they get brought out of captivity, and before you can blink an eye, the men of Israel are intermarrying with pagan women again. Either Ezra or Nehemiah, one of the two, actually went out and slapped a few of them. I'm like, you fool, what are you doing? 
You just got delivered out of 70 year bondage and you're already at it again? And they renounced. They renounced in an official ceremony, an official public uh, display. They renounced the foreign wives and, and got right. These people, you read about it, it's like, no wonder we needed a Savior. And you know what? You and me are just as bad. All right. Now, that's what they did. And, and, and so the first part of Nehemiah is similar in that it covers the physical repair of the city walls, while the second part is basically a spiritual revival, again marked by public reading of God's Word. So Ezra and Nehemiah are very, very similar that way. And uh, you see a, a revival of sorts happening at the end of both books, and the revivals were spearheaded by reading the Bible like we're doing right now. Okay? Now, both physical and spiritual reform occur as they rebuild the temple and the walls and repent of their sin. Now, Ezra 10 and Nehemiah 9 through 10 both show a picture of God's people renewing the covenant. They they get it back together with God. And it's one of the oft-repeated themes throughout the Bible. Get back with God, start reading His Word again, repent of any known sin, and conform your life to the Word of God. And when they did that, they ended up in reform and revival. Nehemiah 8 through 10 is the high point of the story with a covenant renewal ceremony. And purity and obedience to God's Word are at the heart of the covenant. And it's, it's that one right there that I was just telling you where they, they renounced the, the pagan marriages and commit again to God. Now, just in case you're thinking, well, I married an unbeliever. And wow, Pastor Jeff, you're giving me an out. They, they did not. No, no, we're in the new covenant now. Talk to me afterwards. Okay. One thing that really jumps out in these two books is the huge impact the Word of God had on His people when it was rediscovered and publicly read. When you read their history, there were times in Israel's history after the kingdom had divided into Israel and Judah that they just totally neglected the Bible. As a matter of fact, when they were repairing the temple, a, one of the, the cleaner-uppers found the Word of God covered in dust and took it to the king and said, I found this book. And I believe it was Hezekiah. And when Hezekiah read it, he fell on his face and began to tremble and weep and wail. And he said, bring everybody together. We've got to fast and pray. We're under wrath. Well, how did, how did they not know they were under wrath? Because they had totally forsaken the word of God and they did not have the light of the word. So they didn't know that the way they had been living for decades and years and years had brought them under wrath. Do you know that if we could take the Word of God to America right now and just read what it really says in the ears of all Americans, do you know that the repentance it would generate? This is why the devil comes against the Bible being read in schools, the Bible being read in the public square, because the entrance of thy words, the psalmist said, gives light, and it gives understanding to the simple. So they would, they, they would neglect it for long periods of time. Then when they found it, they would come under great conviction and say, oh, no, we're really in trouble with God. Wrath is sitting on us. Okay? Now, 
They rediscovered the Bible and politically read it. The people mourned over their sin when they read the, the Bible, repented, and changed their lifestyles to come into conformity to God's instructions. That's the best thing you can ever do for yourself. Conform your life to the Word of God. Conform your lifestyle. Don't listen to the culture. Our culture has lost its collective mind. Seriously. You want to know how to live? Read the book. Now we come to Esther. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. Now Esther focuses on Persia. Now what is Persia? Persia defeated Babylon, and it was a Persian king that we're going to talk about in a moment, Cyrus, who gave the release to Israel to go back and rebuild. Esther tells us a story of what happened with the Jews who didn't return and stayed in captivity and almost experienced genocide, if not for Esther and God hearing her prayer. The events in Esther most likely happened during the time of Ezra and the rebuilding. God's providence is evident in this book, though his name is never mentioned one time. The whole book of Esther, you won't see the name of God one time. They prayed, but it never says to whom. Because of this, some people have debated, debated whether or not it, uh, it should be even included in the canon of Scripture. But nevertheless, we, we clearly see Jehovah God working throughout the book of Esther. Now, Esther records four main characters. It's, a, it's an incredible book. I really encourage you. No book. This is in the top five of books in the Bible that show the providence of God working. Okay? You have four main characters. Persian king Xerxes. He's mentioned 29 times. Haman, the evil man Haman, mentioned 48 times. Mordecai, Esther's uncle, mentioned 54 times. And Esther mentioned 48 times. Those are the four main characters. Now, in the story, this is, this is really a summary. Haman, who was a Persian noble, hated the Jewish people. Everybody says there's nothing new under the sun. He was an anti-Semite way back then. He hated the Jewish people. He devises a plot in the book of Esther whereby he manipulates King Xerxes into signing off on a genocide of the Jewish people. And Xerxes, I've often wondered where this guy's mind was. Because he signed it, and it was clear what Haman was up to. It was like he was in la-la land. I don't understand. Either he wasn't very bright, or he was drinking. Or something. Seriously. Because he really didn't have a clue. I could almost call him clueless Xerxes. So he signs off on this genocide. Now Esther is a beautiful Jewish woman who, by God's providence, became the queen of Persia. Now, you remember, Mordecai found out about the plot to exterminate the Jews, pulled her aside and, and gave her the famous statement we've often said together. You know what it is? Who knows, but what you have come to the kingdom, say it with me, for such a time as this. Hatched in the dark corridors of hell was this edict that on a given day, all the Jews in Persia were going to be slaughtered. 
except for the ones who had returned to Jerusalem, there would have been no more Jews left. Think about that. There wouldn't have been any left. And here's this little Jewish girl, and her uncle says something to her that is so profound, it's prophetic. But I believe there's that same kind of statement over every one of us here tonight. We should all consider that we have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In other words, we are here at the right time, in the right place, for the right purpose, for the right cause, to do the right thing at the right time, to the glory of God, to defeat the intent of the devil. We, we ought to all think that way. Can you say with me, I have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Do you really believe that? I'm telling you, it's true. You are going to be used to cancel Satan's assignments. You are. We are. I really believe Turning Point has come to the kingdom for such a time as this. I really do. I believe we're all in this together, and together we're going to cancel satanic assignments. Esther was a canceler of satanic assignments, a major one. So Mordecai and Esther put out the word, everybody fast, everybody pray. And on a given day, I'm going to go into the king, and I'm going to ask him. I'm going to, I'm going to expose what Haman's been doing, and I'm going to ask for mercy. She went in. He extended the scepter. He allowed her to come in and bow and speak her mind. She exposed this wicked man. She asked for mercy. She even worked it out where Haman later was in the room, and she pointed right at him. And she said, this wicked Haman is the one who came up with this. And she undid satanic assignments. In the end, Haman was hanged on the very gallows he had planned to hang Mordecai on. That's my favorite part. Because <laughs> this, this man was going to sit back and watch all the Jews and their and mothers and children slaughtered. He was a vicious, evil, wicked, murderous, really Old Testament Hitler type. And he built these gallows for Mordecai a Jew, Esther's uncle, who he hated. And he ended up being hanged on them himself. The Bible says if you roll a stone, it'll return back on your head. Remember that old Roadrunner cartoon? <laughs> Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner. Remember that? <laughs> and Wile E. Coyote was always out to get Roadrunner. And don't you remember that one cartoon? I remember, that's one of the few I remember that Wile E. Coyote was, had lured Roadrunner into a valley. And Coyote was at the top with a great big boulder, and he was going to roll it down the hill and crush Coyote as he ran by. But, I mean, Roadrunner, and Roadrunner came by way faster than he anticipated. The boulder went up the other side, paused, came back down, rolled back up, went up into the air, and you know what happened. Kaboom! And I've seen that happen to people. That's what happened to Haman. Right? <laughs> All right. The whole book of Esther, the whole book of Esther portrays God's providence. 
It's providence, deluxe. Providence refers to God's sovereignty. It means that he's in control over events and how and to how he provides. It talks about his, his providential care. We've all heard that phrase, providential care. It comes from Scripture and God's providential care of his own. Didn't Jesus say, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without your Father's permission? That's often comforted me because I love God's creation. I don't like to see things suffer. And I know that God watches over every one of his creatures. All right? So he's providential. Now, in Esther, you look for evidence of providence over and over again when you're studying it. For instance, let me give you an example of Esther 9, verse 6. Look what he says, quote, You alone are the Lord. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them. And look what he says in the end. Read it with me. And you preserve them all. All the created Listen, his entire creation. That verse says God not only created it, but he providentially preserves it. That's why I know that global warming is a hoax. Seriously. Because the Bible says God made the decree. Until the end of time, fall, winter, spring, summer will not cease. There is no man-made global warming. That's only so that politicians can extract more taxes from us already overtaxed people. That's it. There's no, I mean, and if you disagree with me, that's okay. Chew the meat and spit out the bones. That's, that's my opinion, but I guarantee you it's right. <laughs> and that's going to go over on the radio too. Oh boy. That turning point, Pastor, he's, okay. Now, God created everything, and he sustains it by his providential care. Isaiah spoke a lot more about God's providence. Let me give you some great providence verses, okay? Providence and sovereignty. God is in control over all things. He wrote, look what God does. He, God, brings the princes to nothing. Let's rephrase it. He brings the politicians to nothing. That's, what it, that's who the princes were. He makes the judges of the earth useless. In other words, God's will is ultimately, finally done, no matter what princes or judges do. God is in charge. Now, in Isaiah 44, Verse 6, listen to this. God makes who he is very clear in this verse. Quote, I am the first and I am the last. Well, that settles it, doesn't it? Now, what did Jesus say in Revelations? I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. So who is Jesus? God. Besides me, says God, there is no God. And who can proclaim as I do? Then let him declare it, and set it in order for me, since I'm the one who appointed the ancient people. In other words, you think you can declare like I can? Show me. That's what he's saying. You think you can tell the future like I do? Show me. 
He goes on, and the things that are coming and shall come. He says, I declare the things that are coming and shall come. I tell the future with 100% accuracy. He never misses. There's never a 99.5% with God in accuracy. He's always perfectly accurate when he tells the future. Is there a God besides me, he goes on? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one. (laughs) I love that. Catch that. God says that he has appointed the things to come. He's the Lord of the future. You know what God never says? Well, I'll be. (laughs) He He always says, well, I knew that was coming. He never says, well, I'll be. He's never surprised. Now, referring to Israel's release from captivity, look what Isaiah wrote. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, my hands, God says, my hands, stretch out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him. Now, the him is Cyrus. I have raised Cyrus up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Now, I'm going to read that again because that's Ezra Nehemiah. He said, he shall build my city, who? Cyrus. And he shall let my exiles, my people, in captivity go free, says the Lord of hosts. He named Cyrus through Isaiah. God is literally foretelling ahead of time the name of the man he would raise up to issue the decree of freedom to captive Israel. Cyrus was the king of Persia. He was the Persian king that did it. Now what's amazing here is that Isaiah prophesied about 50 years before Jeremiah. And Jeremiah prophesied to Judah for decades before they were taken captive to to Babylon. He started preaching when he was a young man and he watched them being taken away captive as an old man. So Isaiah passed on 50 years before Jeremiah began. Cyrus came along at the end of their 70-year captivity. So when Isaiah named Cyrus, the Persians had not yet even conquered Babylon, and Cyrus wasn't even born yet. God says, you can tell the future like me, show me. Because I name him. See, when your mama said, when my mama said, we'll call him Jeff, God already knew that. He knows the day you're going to die, knows the day you were born. He knows all about you right now. And you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In a nutshell, that's the history of God's people. Now that we've covered from Genesis to Esther, we're done with the chronological history. Times and dates are going to be mentioned later, but they always harken back to the historical books that we've just covered. Okay? So next time we're going to look at the books of wisdom starting with Job. So let's stand up, can we? If you feel like you learned something, give the Lord a hand of praise. He's good. God is good. Amen. Let's go to the the sovereign God. Lord, we thank you that you're providential. 
We thank you that you're sovereign. We thank you, Lord, that you're the foreteller of the future. That you know exactly what's coming and exactly how to prepare us for it. You alone, Heavenly Father, know when Christ will come again. We thank you that it's all locked up in your wisdom and your timing. And we pray, Lord, that you will help us tonight. Can we lift our hands to, it says lifting up holy hands to him. Just say with me, Lord, thank you. My times are in your hands. Glorify yourself through my life. And help me to be like Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, a helper, an encourager, and a deliverer. In the name of Jesus, the Son of God,